This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Toronto bracing for a potentially large tax increase. Budget deliberations to loom. The number we've acquired is 10.5%. We'll see if we're on it or off by a percentage or two. But the numbers all matter uh, to Torontonians. I got a text in. What about Vancouver, Greg? What about it? Is Vancouver property owners will have a tax increase of 7.5% next year. Not great, slightly more palatable than 10.5, and a big reason is Mayor Ken Sim found some increased cost savings. Now, they've not been identified, but he says city staff kind of, like I said, looked under the hood of the car, and they're going to try and alleviate a massive tax burden on Vancouver taxpayers, a similarly expensive city. Somebody knows both cities very well, Vancouver and Toronto. is the federal leader of the NDP, and he is Jugmeet Singh. Jugmeet, it is great to have you back on Toronto today. Thank you for making the time. Thanks so much for having me. Well, people are pretty fired up. 10.5 as a property tax increase for Toronto is a lot. Um, you know Toronto and Ontario very well. You can imagine it's um, it's it's going down pretty badly today with everybody's breakfast. Oh, yeah. It's it's tough to hear, especially with uh, the overall context of the cost of living going up, cost of everything, uh, mortgage, rent, if you pay rent. Uh, folks have uh, high uh, grocery bills because the cost of groceries are up. So this just adds to that already kind of difficult and a little bit bleak outlook for the year supposed to be looking forward to a new year but for a lot of folks it's a lot of uncertainty a lot of worry a part of that i have to say is the city of toronto has been in a budgetary crunch for a number of years and we had thought that with so many liberal mps in the city of toronto that the government of canada would have stepped up the prime minister would have stepped up and provided some support you mentioned uh, toronto like many municipalities in canada have to deliver as a city has to deliver more and more services with less and less Mm -hmm. ability to do so they don't have the the revenue stream, like you mentioned. So provincially and federally, there's a responsibility to step up. And ultimately, the long-term sustainable goal should be to provide them with some sort of meaningful, sustainable source of revenue in addition to what was the the gas tax. But we need more revenue, and uh, Toronto needs more support. And so far, it looks like the Liberals are not not, uh, there when Toronto needs it. So how do Torontonians hold politicians' feet to the fire? Even if they're upset about what's happening municipally, what's your recommendation for them um, for going hard at Liberal MPs and, yes, NDP and Conservative MPs who aren't doing enough to hold the Liberals to, to feet to the fire? Well, I'd say it, it's really an electoral question. When, when people decided to vote for Liberals uh, for a number of years, we say the Liberals were in for now almost nine years. If you are a Torontonian, ask yourself, has the city become safer? Has it become more affordable? Is it more livable? I think folks in Toronto would say no. And, and really, it's the responsibility of the people that you elect in the city, and, and people have not been well served. I would say, if you look at the different parties and what they've used their power to do, New Democrats have used our power at the federal level to force this government to do more for people. We're the ones that forced the GST rebate doubling. We forced uh, the government to bring in a dental care program that's going to help uh, millions of seniors and kids under 18. We've been using our power to help people out. What have the Conservatives been doing? Well, they use their power to vote against a school lunch program. You know, this is a, a, a leader of the Conservative Party who says he cares about people yeah. and the high cost of food. He voted against giving kids a lunch. Uh, that makes no sense at all. It's something that's been widely said would be non-inflationary. It would have helped out families, helped out those kids. So that's what he's using his power. I'm using my power to give people a break. I know you've been critical of Justin Trudeau in terms of saying what I said, look under the hood of the car, find inefficiencies. You're spending way too much money on things that don't necessarily matter at the kitchen table. I know you know Olivia Chow, and I know you're fond of her. Can't you put the same criticism towards her? She decided against a city review 
of looking at things that might be inefficiencies, might be redundant. We do this in our own households, Jugmeet. She wasn't willing to do it for the city of Toronto. That's indefensible to a lot of people. Well, the difference, I think, with, with cities, and, and I think it's important to always look at things that we can avoid spending money on. Like at the federal level, there's some really glaring things that I pointed out. Uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in outsourcing when we've got a very capable public service that can do a lot of the work. Hundreds of millions of dollars that went to consultants. That's something that should stop at the federal level. And uh, billions of dollars in subsidies to already highly profitable oil and gas companies. That, those are very easy cuts that I would make at the federal level. At the city level, it's a little different. We, we know that financially the outlook has been tough for a number of years. There hasn't been the appropriate balancing of, of the needs of the city with the revenue ability. And so this is kind of a long time coming, and the federal government hasn't stepped up. The thing that I know Mayor Chow is worried about is there have already been worrying cuts to programs like uh, libraries and, and school programs for kids or after school programs and uh, things like community centers and, and, and pools. These are things that families and kids rely on. So I think she was very reluctant to go down that route um, and, and face with the reality, had to make a tough decision. But I really think this is something that the federal government has a big responsibility in, that they've not stepped up. Things like the refugee crisis, that's solely the responsibility of the federal government. We saw refugees on the streets of Toronto when that is clearly something the federal government should have stepped up and provided support on. So I really see that a lot of the problems that Toronto is going through is because they haven't had a strong partner at the federal level. If someone had landed from another planet today and they were listening to our conversation and someone said, why is Toronto such an important economic driver for all of Canada? You know it well, but how would you explain it to them? Well, I mean, there's some obvious things. It's the largest city in Canada. It's uh, a major economic financial hub. And it, it's, the, it's one of the major cities of the, of, of the country. And in a lot of ways, it is the major economic driver of not just the province of Ontario, but in a lot of ways, the whole country. So it is significant being such a large population, having so many of the vital uh, economic institutions here. It is uh, incredibly important. And that's why the federal government does have a responsibility to provide support. I'm watching what's happening in the United States um, with, um, with with migrant issues and refugee issues. It, it's The heartbreaking footage is the same in Chicago and New York as it is here. What I'm seeing from those mayors, like Eric Adams in New York, for example, Democrat mayors, not Republican mayors, is they're begging the federal government for clarity on policy. Who can stay? Who's coming into the country legally? Do we have things we have to get right? Because mayors like Olivia Chow, I'll, I'll say it. I think it's a losing battle to try and figure all this out when there isn't policy. They can ask for money, but I think they need a clear policy as to who is allowed in and who isn't. Do they not? Well, I think the, the thing that we do need to take a look at is I, I, I believe very strongly in this notion that as members of a global, we're, we're global citizens and, and we've got a responsibility that if there's troubles around the world that we do our part to welcome, welcome people to Canada. A lot of the incredible contributions that have been made in our country are made by people that have come here from different countries and immigrants and refugees. So we've got a rep- reputation and a responsibility but we also have to make sure that we are we are welcoming people that we can actually properly welcome. And I think there is a, a disconnect between the the infrastructure available, the resources that we have, and making sure that we properly welcome people so that they aren't coming out to Canada, coming to Toronto and ending up on the streets of our city. I think there is clearly a disconnect there. We need to make sure that the proper systems are in place so that people are received, they're able to get their feet on the ground, they're able to find a way 
to start building a life here in Canada and contributing back, which they want to do and they want to build to build a life for themselves. Are you worried? There's certainly a disconnect. Are you worried we have an illegal immigration problem in Canada? No, I, I think what we have uh, as a problem is the, the federal government hasn't done enough work to ensure that our, our immigration policies are uh, adequately resourced so that we can welcome the people that we are we are saying come to Canada. And that applies on a lot of fronts. We need to make sure that when people are able to go to school here, which we think is an incredible important thing, that those institutions, those schools, those colleges, universities have adequate housing for the students that are being welcomed. Mm. We need to make sure that when refugees are coming, that we have adequate resources to ensure that they are able to come here and then end up contributing back to society. And so I think those are the gaps that are there, that there's not the work necessarily being done to ensure that we welcome people as students, we welcome people as refugees, as new Canadians. We need to make sure that the resources and the infrastructure is adequate to welcome the people we want to. Jagmeet Singh is our guest. Last thing for you, I know you said at the end of the year uh, that it is off the table, the idea of forming a coalition government with the Liberals. Is it your expectation there won't be a federal election in 2024, that we're doing this till 2025? Well, on this on this type of question, the way I look at it is um, we're, we're trying to use our power in this minority government to make the government work for people. And we've done that with a dental care program that's going to help millions of people. We forced the government to double the GST rebate that put money back in people's pockets. So we want to keep on doing that. That's our goal. And ultimately, what we've seen in the past is it's going to be the government, like the governing parties, so in this case, the liberals, that will ultimately decide when there's an election. They did that in 2022. That was kind of out of the blue for a lot of us. We didn't expect yeah. that to happen, but they made that decision. So our goal is let's use the power we have to get people the help they need. And that's that's what we're focused on. Jagmeet Singh, federal leader of the NDP. Thank you so much for the time today. And we'll talk soon. Thanks again. Sounds good. Take care. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Sick days. A really an interesting conversation uh, with school boards. I know we have a lot of teachers that listen to the show. Um, and there's always a great debate about what's too many, what's not enough. But what isn't up for debate right now is a lot of schools in the Toronto area are having support staff shortages. And you've got people teaching subjects that, you know, they're doing their best, but maybe they're not totally qualified to do it. You know how you'd go to elementary school, you'd have a substitute teacher in for the day, and it felt like she or he just fit in seamlessly. It's not the same. No one's saying it's supposed to be. And high school, same thing. But what I'm hearing from high schools right now is you got people teaching physics that are English teachers. You got people that are English teachers or librarians. They're teaching French like it's all over the map right now. And don't get anybody started on phys ed. So there's a ton of daily staff shortages still in a lot of job categories. And it ends up being a problem. Former school board trustee Anoka DeKrub joins us now on Toronto Today. It's great to have you back on the show. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much, Greg. Happy New Year. Like what? to be back on. Likewise. This has been the case for a long, long time, but I want to yeah. ask if this has been exacerbated uh, sort of post-2020 and a lot of the staff absences for sickness. Are we in a worse place than we were four or five years ago, Noka? I think we absolutely are in a worse place than we were five years ago. Um, the the pandemic exasperated a lot of staff sh- shortages in a lot of different um, a lot of different sectors. Education is one of them. But the thing about it is that this is something that government intervention, um, you know, um, is required to be able to to help with staff sh- shortages. So we can't keep blaming the pandemic because people are are starting to see the pandemic in the rearview mirror, and we 
you know, as terrible as, as, as it was, we need to be able to move forward. And, and the government doesn't seem to have any plan to do anything about education staff shortages. And the idea is just to keep blaming the pandemic that happened. Are there so we know that there's always concerns about supply teachers or supply teachers able Noka, to go from board to board to board. Could I supply teach in Peel region for three days one week and then get called to Durham region for a couple of days the week after that? So they can be on multiple supply lists, but they have to apply to get on the supply list. So that's not mm-hmm. as much of an issue. Um, I think the issue is just just not enough. And the, the demand is so high um, because we have we have a lot of schools and we have a lot of teachers. So, you know, and, and if a percentage of um, an X percentage of, of the teachers are going to be away on a particular day, because that's just that's just what happens. We don't have enough supply teachers to fill in those gaps. Um, sick days are often um, controversial. I, I remember uh, when my mom retired, she had, uh, and she was a JK uh, ESL teacher, she had all these um, sick days that she was able to cash out at the end. Is there an ideal system? There's a lot of, there's even teachers and administrators that love the idea. Well, let's give you a set amount of sick days and whatever you don't use, you can use the next year, but you can't keep carrying them on to where you've got 160 sick days after six sets. That's a rare case. But should we have a scenario where they're bankable or should we have a scenario where um, there's, a, there's a set capped amount? So they're not bankable anymore. And mm-hmm. now they have 11, uh, they have 11 days Um per calendar per well, school year to to use as sick days but honestly i think if there's a lot of debate about uh, teacher sick days and it's been going on for for many years i don't think that's that's the problem here though yeah i think the, this is a bigger systemic issue um whether it's you know 10 days or 11 days or seven days i don't think that's going to make um a tremendous difference I think the biggest issue is a lot of people left the system at at a time when it was, um, you know, it was expected that there would be a, a bit of an exodus. And previous to that, we we used to have a lot of teachers in Ontario. I'm sure you remember there was a time when everybody would complain there was they knew a teacher that couldn't get a job, and they were a young teacher and just graduated and couldn't get couldn't get a job. And then the government at the time, which you know, um, uh, you know, was a policy that was justified at the time. They changed teachers' college to two years, which reduced the the supply of new teachers. And and then pandemic happens, yeah. and you have you know all these people retiring and leaving the profession, and people just leaving the profession for different reasons. Um, and you didn't have enough supply coming coming into the system. I was going to ask you about that. Should we, should yeah. we reconsider the two years? Should we go back to when I went to school, if people wanted to go to graduate school for teacher's college after getting an honors BA, they'd go and they'd be in school for 12 months and they'd go September to September. And next thing you know, they could get into classroom supply, teach. Uh, uh, and, and then next thing you know, their career begins. Is it, t- is it too long to be out not making money? A lot of people just can't afford to do the two years. Well, yeah, exactly. So I'm one of those people. I have a teacher's college degree. I yeah. never used it, but um, you know. Oh, um, we're all the worst for that. How can let's let's get you back in the let's get you into the classroom <laughs> next back, year. Just go back to work. <laughs> so, um, so so the thing is with the way I view public policy is about it's some policies are good for today because they meet the challenges of the time, and some policies are and the same policy may not be good tomorrow mm. because it doesn't meet the challenge of the time. So I don't get married to a particular policy that okay, um, mm. teachers' college has to be two years. 
Right now, we have a shortage of teachers. We need to get more teachers into the system as soon as possible because we have children who are and and and, um, and secondary uh, students um, who are not getting the education that they need and deserve. So we need to do something about that. So, you know, is does it have to be two years? Should it be one year? Personally, I I felt pretty prepared after one year of, of teacher's college. And you're right, the added expense makes it a bit of, um, um, you know, a bit, a bit of a barrier. It's hard to go through, and, and expensive to go through four years of university. Yeah. On top of that, to go to a, through another two years of, of a postgraduate program in order to be able to get on a supply list so that hopefully maybe one day you're going to get a permanent position. That's the other problem. It's hard to get a permanent job in the system. Yeah. It takes a long time. So me as a professional, right? I want to get a professional degree. Do I really want to get a professional degree and then spend my time trying to get a permanent position? Or do I get another prof- professional degree where I finish my degree, I work maybe for a year on contract, and then I get a permanent position. Well, I think it's hard. I, I think you nailed it. You can't just sort of um, languish might be a strong word, but you can't sort of hang out on a supply list for year after year after year. Yeah. You can't. It, then there's um, an it, there's an undetermined amount of income you make per year. You could work uh, 18 days one month and three the next. And the travel as well. Like pe- like people need order in, in their existence. And if you're stuck on a supply list too long, Noka, you're, you're going to find something else to do. And we're going to lose a good person potentially who could teach for 20 years. Absolutely. And, and, and the stress, right? And yeah. the mental health stress. I, I personally know teachers who have been stuck on the supply list for years. And they're fantastic teachers. Mm-hmm. And they're so committed to the profession. But they just can't seem to get into that permanent position. They go from LTO to long-term occasional contract to yeah. long-term occasional contract. And, and it's very stressful for them. Mm-hmm. People don't want to go through that. So there's a lot of work that needs to be uh, needs to be uh, improved in the system, and I, I don't necessarily know all the answers, but there there are a lot of problems. And now, you know, honestly, this government does not seem to have any interest or any plan to address the staffing shortages. Yeah, yeah, and I know it's it's been frustrating for the opposition parties as well uh, who want to press uh, the government a little bit more. Given there's just there's it's tough to get to the top of the headlines. There's been this. There's been that. There's been the housing crisis. There's been mm-hmm. the war. Um, it, it ends up not being front and center uh, for people who've got kids in the system. I love having our conversations. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was great to uh, great to have you on. I want to touch on some education issues in a little bit, but that, uh, of course, Noka DeKrub, she's a former school board trustee. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. You do know that uh, the tax hike is going to be a double-digit one, 10.5%. I heard 11.3, so somehow, some way, it's been whittled down to a way more understandable 10.5%. Let me play you what Anna Bailau, who finished a close second in the mayoral race, promised a week before we went to the polls and Toronto voted in the mayoral by-election. She promised she'd keep the tax rate at the rate of inflation. You know, Olivia Chow doesn't even tell us how much she's going to increase on property taxes. When we having, when people are facing an affordability crisis, a lot of people bought homes recently. Interest rates are going up all the time. They're having a tough time even keeping their homes. And Olivia Chow doesn't tell you if it's going to be 15% or 20%. I've committed to have property tax rates at the rate of inflation because I recognize 
the affordability crisis that it has and the impact that it has on people's lives. Now, Olivia Chow just edged out and a bylaw to become mayor. Olivia Chow had money to spend on advertising, and she lamented the fact that Torontonians couldn't afford the basics anymore. I don't think a 10.5 tax hike is going to help that much. Toronto just isn't affordable anymore. Housing, transit, the cost of living. It shouldn't be this hard. I'm Olivia Chow, and I can't stand by while things get worse. Together, we can build a Toronto that's caring, affordable, and safe. Okay, can't put a price on caring. In a way, you can't put a price on safety, but uh, it shouldn't be this hard. It's going to get a lot harder at a tax rate of 10.5%. Our next guest was also guest hosting over the Christmas holidays, many times in for John Oakley, sometimes for Alex Pearson. He finished fourth in the Toronto mayoral by-election to the surprise of some, and he joins us now. He is Anthony Fury. It's great to have you on Toronto today, Anthony, as always. Thanks for making the time. Yeah, good to be here, Greg. When I play that Olivia Chow commercial, you probably heard that a lot, uh, and she talked about Toronto not being affordable anymore. You and other candidates um, were attempting in your platforms to make Toronto more affordable. A 10.5% hike is going to do the exact opposite, is it not? Greg, people are very upset to learn about this double-digit increase, and there was a better way. It didn't have to be this way, which is what's so unfortunate about this, and I think really a failure of leadership at City Hall. And and I'm shocked. I thought she was going to be more reasonable about all of this. Inflation is at 3% right now. And we are seeing a double digit increase, which is going to get passed on to renters. It's going to get passed on uh, in much broader ways in the economy. Greg Olivia Chow has made no attempt to do cost restraints. I had said that If I got into office the first 90 days, we would have a full program review, a spending review to take a look at everything that's going on. They've done nothing of the sort. Olivia Chow has not looked at the books at all, not even made an attempt at it. Instead, all she's done is said, we need more money. We need to take more money from other levels of government and we need to take money from hardworking people, from taxpayers. It's just unacceptable that we have not seen any cost restraint measures. I said we'd do a non-core services hiring freeze as well, so we can readjust some priorities. Nothing like that. It is truly shocking. Why did council reject a review of services? Like, why, why did she open herself up to people like you to come on with someone like me and say exactly that, which is a true thing? There's no accountability to see how effective programs are. Why not look under the hood of the car? Yeah, why not? Exactly. Do the exercise. We're dealing with a deficit right now. It's a challenging one. And I had said that, okay, billion dollar deficit, but you first go and look at the books to see how much you can whittle that down. Because the budget, Greg, has grown by 50% in the past decade. That is huge. There are a lot of opportunities here. And we can talk about things that we're doing that when people look at it, they go, wait, that's not actually core city service. We can stop doing that entire program. And I have a number of Uh, examples I can give to you where you can do that without at all affecting service delivery, still giving people what they rely upon. I think it's ideology, Greg, and I think that's unfortunate. It's a tax and spend ideology, and yet people don't want ideology right now. They just want the city to get working, uh, to get moving, deal with congestion, to deal with public safety. We're not seeing any of that right now.
And we're seeing, I've referenced this a few different times, and people might say, well, that's the United States. But I think some problems are just universal. We're seeing Democratic mayors, Eric Adams in New York, mayors in Chicago and Philadelphia, begging the federal government, give us a plan here. Give us a plan here. Close the borders. Enact proper migration policies so that the people that do come here as refugees have a fighting shot. We're doing none of that. Like, Anthony, this this tax hike, there has to be a massive stipulation. I'm begging city councilors, no money goes to new funding for shelters. Those have to be funded by the federal government, do they not? No, you're not going to see that stipulation. You're not going to see anything like that from Olivia Chow and Budget Chief Shelley Carroll. All they're saying is, well, we have to take more money from you. That's all they're saying. And that's really concerning that there isn't a cohesive plan here. Anthony Fury is our guest on Toronto Today. Where do you think some of the fat is in terms of the the city budget? Are there obvious things, things you learned on the campaign trail and you thought that sounds redundant? Why are there two people doing the same job or why wasn't this contract, you know, get given out and we got a better bid in the process? We all would do this with our own households if we didn't like the cost to repair a roof or the price of a new dishwasher. We shop around. Is the city not doing that enough? I don't think they are. I learned things on the campaign trail, and I also studied the budget in great detail before I decided to run, because you got to be job ready, and you got to know what you're getting into here. And it's alarming that Olivia Chow, I think, hadn't done that budgetary analysis. I'll give you an example. The city's climate change department currently has over 100 full-time employees. That is a department that doesn't do a service delivery. It's not picking up the garbage. It's not yeah. uh, providing you know, summer programs for kids. It's not fixing the water mains. I think we need to look at departments like that and do a non-core services hiring freeze. I think we've also seen where there's been excessive growth in departments to get us to the point where the budget's 50% greater than it was 10 years ago. We need to take a look at those situations so we can do things like bring our policing levels back to where they were a decade ago. People want public safety dealt with. All these cars that are being stolen left, right and center, we can't begin to deal with that until we fund the basics again. So Olivia Chow taking more money than we've seen in recent history, Greg, and yet we're not getting the basics funded. Where are the priorities? I got to go in a second, but as some of this land and on the longtime counselors, we see Shelly Carroll out there, the Carrolls, the Matlows. Yeah, the holidays like that. There's a lot of people that have been on council a long time. And does this also land at the doorstep of former mayors, Tory, the late Rob Ford, David Miller? Like, where does it stop? Sure, these choices are compounding, but I think you're right that Shelley Carroll should know better. She's been around. She's been looking at the budget, so that's very unfortunate. And you know who should know better? Olivia Chow, because she was analyzing the budget back in the 90s when she was a counselor. But guess what? She tried to advocate for 12 13% increases in a single year, so the leopard has not changed its spot. She was a tax-and-spend politician in the 90s. She is again today. Anthony Fury, thanks for the time today. Thank you. As always, Greg. Take care. Anthony Fury joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Not leading the headlines this morning. And we, I don't know that we wanted it to, because we surely don't want to, uh, uh, you know, uh, how would I put it? Romanticize something that was tragic, but there was quite the moments uh, in our friend Sheba's neighborhood last night. Um, by the way, mine is dwarf. My kid drove to the gym at the Ajax Community Center and police were blocking off both entrances and police oh. had found a specific, uh, excuse me, a suspicious package that was specific to that area. Um, and so he couldn't get in to use the gym. So, so poli- he didn't work out last night. Yeah, He's those, those yeah, those try. And what was the package? Don't know. Mm-hmm. Not, not sure. They're going to reopen it this morning for certain. 
But you had also a police experience of your own last night in this awful weather, no less. Oh, it was pouring rain and my phone started going off. I mean, okay, listen, we all mock and make fun of and tease the mom groups. But the mom groups are the ones, if there's ever a war here, the mom groups are going to be the first ones that come forward and save all of us. Because my they started letting me know <laughs> in my neighbor there were cop cars, there was a break in entry, something's going on, on, on like one of the main roads in my neighborhood. So I thought, you know what, I'd like to go for a walk after dinner. I believe in there's no such thing as bad weather. So I geared up, told my family, I'll be back in 20 minutes. I'm going to go check this out. I get there. There are 23 police cars on the street surrounding this one house. Uh, and then I, I started asking, cops won't talk to me at that point. So there are a couple of people that are standing outside in the rain and they start telling me, yeah, there's apparently there's there's a standoff going on. The robbers are still in the house. Uh, I saw police dogs are barking. I hear yelling. I see police officers holding assault rifles. Uh, it was pretty chaotic. So I'm like, well, I, I, I'm not going anywhere. This is where I'm camping out for the rest of the night. Yeah. Uh, and the door to the garage is open. The police show up. They're in the garage with the garage door to the house open. And they're sort of yelling. They're yelling in and you hear dogs and all these tactical teams start showing up in full gear, Brady. I've never, I felt like I was in a movie. Like I was waiting for someone to say, I'll be back because these guys show up. It's pouring rain. And it's pounding street. rain. Like you're, you're seeing a full on SWAT team. These aren't a couple, no. couple cops in, in their normal no. uniforms in the, one car. The first team shows up. First, it's these two, it's four guys that show up and they have shields, helmets, assault rifles, full gear. Mm-hmm. It's kind of sexy. I'll, I'll admit it. I have to say that, Brady. And then two other guys show up on this other unit for the tactical team and they're like getting ready to go in. And it's, it's very exciting. At this point, it's been like an hour and a half. I'm drenched. Everybody else has left. They've told all the neighbors, stay in your houses, <laughs> lock your doors. Uh, and it, it was, but I'm not going anywhere. I'm the kind of person if there's, you know, if you hear something, I'm there, I'm first in line, put me, I want to see what's going on. Uh, so they eventually enter the house two and a half hours later. Now these are 23 v- police vehicles at one point, the maximum Come amount on. that I counted. I'm, it was chaos. The entire area oh. was cordoned off. Uh, and they're surrounding this house. They go inside. And this is where I'm like, okay, this is it. They're going to come out with these guys, whoever was going on. I hear all this yelling. Dogs are barking. Uh, guns everywhere. What happens? The police officer comes to me. Oh, then they turn off the lights. And I'm like, why are all the lights off so in the, the street house? Lights. Are the street the lights out? No, the house lights. Oh, the house lights. Okay. The, the house lights were all on. So the house goes completely dark. At this point, the police officer that's out there starts talking to me, filling me in, understands I'm from, you know, where I'm from, what I do. And he starts giving me information. He says, oh, they're doing, they're clearing the house in the dark. This is a movie, Brady. In the dark, they're clearing the house. Uh, so it's pitch black. They're going room to room, I guess, with like night vision goggles looking for these people. And then what happens? He comes to me a little while later and says, well, that's that. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? What happened? Where are these guys? And he says, apparently they got away through an upstairs balcony door. This is a really nice house. It's a, one of like a f- really fancy house in the neighborhood. And there was an upstairs balcony, I guess, to the master bedroom. And they got out through there. Well, well, how the do they sh- how do they get down from the top level? They can't I jump th- like a I ladder. I don't know. They must have. They must have climbed up somehow yeah. and then and then jumped down or climbed down whatever it was. 23 police vehicles, which means 23 officers cordoned out the outside of the house, including the backyard, six tactical officers, uh, assault rifles, police dogs, and these guys got away. 
what's going on, Brady? What and so now what will the um what will the mom group chat be today? Like like Oh, are, everyone's terrified. Yes. Everyone's terrified. There's This is scared. one terrified group of moms. Oh, they were telling me get out. I, I was I was live tweeting this as it was going on, as you already know. <laughs> and they're like, get out of there, go home. What are you doing? And I, I'm trying to get in the house. I'm like, put me in the action, put me in the garage. But these guys got away after all of that. Maybe, maybe, um, maybe we're getting the wrong uh, uh, birthday gifts for you, and you need a taser and night vision goggles. <laughs> night, I have night vision. My kids, I bought them for my kids. They're a lot of fun. Oh my heavens! Uh, well, yeah, but you can't. Uh, you need them at, a, at an important time like that. But also the taser. You see that Instagram ad for like a taser, and I'm like, and then there's a big list at the end. It's like this product's illegal in basically <laughs> 41 states and uh, and every single damn province, including none of it. Like you can't. You can't utilize the taser, uh, but you you know you can have it at the ready along with the night vision goggles. I think you missed your calling with police college too. It's not too <laughs> Listen, late. I, I like standing on the side and seeing what's going on, talking to them. Put me in there. I'd love to do it. I just don't give me a gun. I don't want a gun. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We'll we'll uh, we'll make you one of those gunless officers. This is Toronto today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news today's talk six forty Toronto. We're dealing with a deficit right now. It's a challenging one, and I had said that. Okay, billion dollar deficit, but you first go and look at the books to see how much you can whittle that down because the budget has grown by 50% in the past decade. That is huge. There are a lot of opportunities here, and we can talk about things that we're doing that when people look at it, they go, wait, that's not actually core city service. We can stop doing that entire program. It's Anthony Fury from earlier today, former mayoral candidate. There's a lot of links to the chain here. We just spoke to Jugmeet Singh, and he said, of course, we have to press the federal government on making things whole for the city when it comes to the refugee issue. I'd agree. I want to hear from more people that say exactly that, that this new tax increase, it cannot go. Not just, oh, we hope it doesn't. It cannot go to new funding for shelters right now. Those have to be funded by the federal government. So there's got to be, you know, again, there's there's got to be all the wheels and all the pistons and all the engine working together to make the car go down the road sometimes. Gord Perks has been a Toronto City Councillor since 2006 and kind enough to join us now on Toronto Today. It's always nice to have you on, Gord. I appreciate you making the time. Morning, Greg. Great to be here. It's great to be here. This uh, 10.5% increase, uh, it's a big number. If I told you this was the number six, seven months ago, would you have said, yeah, we're going to have to grin and bear a painful tax increase, or does this even surprise you? Uh... What's surprising to me, Greg, is that we finally have some adults in the room. Uh, for, for the last 15 years or so, the city of Toronto has been hiding its problems. And as a result, they got worse and worse and worse. And now we're just at a breaking point. Uh, you know, we had a perfect storm. The pandemic hit and then the economy started to slow down. And as you said, we've got a housing challenge and a shelter challenge all at the same time. And, you know, Mayor Chow has been out saying this is a three-government problem. Mm-hmm. We've got some from the province. Today we're doing our bit, and we need the federal government to come in next. She absolutely has, at times, called out the federal government, provincial government, for not doing enough. She did say while running for mayor that there would be modest increases. I think we'd concur something's changed along the way since getting elected. 10.5% is not a modest increase, is it? Well, Greg, it. You need some context here. The city of Toronto still has the lowest taxes in southern Ontario. And that's because, you know, we've been falling behind year after year after year. You know, Rob Ford and John Tory didn't do us any favors 
by saying, oh, we can find it with efficiencies. Well, they never found them. What they did is dig a giant hole. And to, to make the argument to the federal government, we need money from them. We have to say, and we're willing to, to do our share, and we're willing to have tax rates that are similar to what you see in Mississauga or Brampton or just about anywhere else. It's how. What are you going to hear from your constituents? Obviously, um, there's a lot of people struggling to hold on to the houses they have who haven't even had to renegotiate interest rates uh, with their bank. We're all hoping. You mean probably everybody else hoping interest rates go down at some point in the next four, five, six months. But it is what it is, as uh, as people like to say. How can how can some Torontonians afford this? Well, one of the things everybody forgets in these conversations is that spending public money saves you money at home. Can you imagine, Greg, what people would have to pay if we didn't run the TTC? Think about what parking would cost or an Uber would cost. Can you imagine if uh, we didn't have the emergency services and you had to pay for your own private security? When we do things together, it saves money for households. Yeah, we all got to put a little bit in, but it's more efficient if we run one big transit system together. It's more efficient if we all pay to have our water delivered together. So public investment actually saves household costs. Court Perks is our guest on Toronto Today. I know you probably heard what I said out of the gate. The idea of shelter costs should not be the city's problem. I think we're in full-on agreement there. But that means not spending the money now and hoping we get it later from the federal government. It means not spending any money that isn't already in hand, right? We can't be, if you will, a 19-year-old away at university with an unlimited credit card. We know how that will go. Like, is there a way that we can stop anything in which the money isn't already in in the city's hands? Well, uh, I think you'll hear today that uh, even with what we're doing, we still need the federal government to come in. We are not picking up all the costs. No. That's one. Two, you have to remember, if we don't provide shelter, that doesn't mean the cost problem goes away. The people who are living on our streets in the winter, if we're not providing them with shelter, you know where they wind up? They wind up in hospital emergency rooms. They wind up in police stations. And that is far more expensive than if they wind up in a shelter. And frankly, the the cheapest thing, the the least expensive, most efficient thing is if they get into housing. And we have been making major asks of the federal and provincial government, help us house people. We don't want to keep them in shelters. I'll tell you this morning also, and you're probably not surprised. And I'm not much probably surprised in politics anymore, Gord. But but there's a lot of people from the suburbs making the point you made, but also having very little empathy for Torontonians. And I don't want to pit, you know, 416 versus 905 and 647 and the rest. But they are making that point. And many of these people are people that come into the city, work in the city. They come to games in the city, concerts in the city, but they don't pay city taxes. And they're saying exactly what you said. We're already paying high rates. It's about time you paid your fair share. Why weren't previous mayors more honest about this? Why did they why did they not do the hard work and why are, why is it left to this generation and where we are now to do it? You know what I said? I said it right off the top. The thing that surprises me is that finally the adults are in charge. We had a, a very dishonest conversation for the last decade and a half. Uh, John Tory just wasn't straight with folks. Uh, he pretended that you could keep property taxes down and have great services, and look around you. Are the services as good as they were 10 years ago? No, they're not. So we just, you know, we believe you have to invest in a city if to, that makes it great to live in, 
And that means the, Torontonians have to pay the kind of property taxes that you pay in Mississauga or Brampton. The counter to that, isn't it, though, is some of the competitiveness of the city contracts, right? I mean, you and I could be equally frustrated with Metrolinx and, and uh, the, the Eglinton LRT. There's not much anybody can do about that. But the contracts for snow removal, garbage bins, et cetera, even, even how the TTC runs sometimes rather inefficiently. People might look and say, is there a better way to do contracts um, and, and to be able to square it up that way? Uh, in terms of the contracts, you should know whenever we contract out for a, uh, uh, a private service, uh, we put it out to competitive tenders so we get the lowest price. So I, I don't I don't know what point somebody's trying to make there, yeah. but yeah, I, really, if you look at what we spend uh, per person on road repair or per person on childcare spaces or whatever, we're, we're an incredibly efficient government. The problem is that uh, we've been holding everything together with chewing gum and scotch tape for so long that things are bursting at the seams. So we finally have a mayor and a council who's willing to be straight with Torontonian saying, look, if you want a seat on the bus, if you want the garbage picked up out of the park, it costs money. There was a poll the other day. Uh, I want to ask you about Sankofa Square. There was a poll the other day showing 72% of people that responded in Toronto disapproved of the name change. 12% aren't sure. This is something that many people might say, Gord, didn't need to be done. The renaming of Dundester. We all have to look at our history and our historical figures. Absolutely, all that's true. But the timing of this, I mean, we're doing this to the point where we're not going to rename all of Dundas Street because the cost would check in at close to $20 million was the last estimate. Is there any argument there to say we can't be doing these kind of things? We got to deliver the practical services for the people that pay taxes. I mean, yeah, we, you can talk about, you can find specific things, but you go look at the big ticket items, right? Our big ticket items are not how you name a street. That's, you know, a million. We started out with 1.6 billion, 8, 1.8 billion that we had to solve this year. We're looking at the big ticket services, like how on earth do we make sure we don't have people dying on our streets? How do we make sure that the bus actually arrives when you need to get to work in the morning? How do we make sure if you dial nine one one, someone gets there in a timely way? Those are the you know those are the hundred million dollar questions, and uh, you know I really encourage people to think about those big things that are the backbone of how the city of Toronto operates. Would you hope? Last thing for you, uh, the Canada Emergency Business Account, the small business loans are also coming due. Will there be a push from the city? for some form of extension on these. I know you and I know restaurant owners and bookstore owners and clothing store owners are pressed up against it right now. Can we give these people a little more time and relief coming out of the pandemic and pandemic restrictions, Gord? Uh, we, we have been taking consistent positions and telling the federal government that they've got to continue to help the economy get back on its feet, particularly in service industries yeah. like restaurants. Uh, we've also... You know, we've done a whole lot of little programs that are within our financial means to try to help restaurants and stuff uh, from direct cash in some cases, yeah. lower property tax. But the big thing that's helping them actually is Cafe TO. That's a huge re- revenue generator, and we're paying all the costs setting that stuff up. So I agree. We, you know, the city of Toronto works because we have so many thriving main streets, and the federal government has to help us out there too. Gord, I got a blast. I know you do too. Thanks so much for the time today. Take it easy. There's Gord Perks.